threw off my groove. Children are invited to children's church. Uh, if you want to follow, go out the back, your teacher will take you. And, uh, <laughs> if there's one mistake on the slides. <laughs> so I don't know if you got the hint, but it sounds like we're at a transition point because um, Paul goes back to Antioch. And so that's what's going on is we're at this kind of transition point. And, you know, so often I, I, early in the week when I read this stuff, I'm going, this is just kind of a summing up. And what am I going to do with this? But Luke always has a purpose. He always has a reason for doing the things that he's doing. And, and so it just takes a little bit of time of letting it soak in my head before I can see what I catch up to what Luke is up to. And that's the case for today. So uh, before we begin, let me open us in prayer and then we'll take a look at the scriptures. Lord, I, I want to pray for um, uh, folks in our church who are looking for jobs or looking for other jobs. Uh, Lord, you are sovereign over all of those things. Um, the, the happenings right down to the little minutia that goes on in people's lives, Lord, that's all in your hands. And so, Lord, we entrust our friends to you and say, would you, Lord, provide for them? And Lord, would you use whatever means is appropriate, lead them to the right position, to the right job that you have in mind for them. And Lord, I pray for those who are sick in our congregation. There's still a few people out, although I think we're coming out of the, the season of the plague. Um, Lord, I pray for the restored health for everybody who's been struck uh, by this sickness that's come about. And uh, Lord, in their weaknesses and their, uh, their, their struggles, Lord, I pray that they would find that you are enough, that... Um, while it's not comfortable, it's not enjoyable, it can be scary sometimes, Lord, um, you are sufficient and uh, you have uh, opened a new way. You have gone through suffering and pain, even to death, and opened a new way for us. And so may we, through our suffering, through our sickness, through, through the trials we face, learn to trust you more. So Lord, would you open our eyes to that? And then Lord, as we turn now to your word, we need your help. Um, Holy Spirit, if we don't have you with us, the, your word itself says that these things are spiritually appraised. They are spiritually discerned. And that means, Lord, we need you. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come and be with us now? Open our eyes and our hearts to hear and to understand. Show us what you have to say to us, to this church at this time in this place through your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So before we begin, let's get the map out of the way, right? We get the technical details done, and then when we go through and we work through this, you'll have a picture in your mind of where this stuff is. So here's the map. Um, what's going on is Paul is currently here in Corinth, and he has now decided that he's going to sail back home. He's going to go to Antioch. So what it says at the beginning is he set sail for Syria. Well, this area over here is Syria. So he's going to go from Corinth to Syria. And to get there, he goes through this little city here, uh, I wrote down the pronunciation because I knew I'd say it wrong. Sancrie. What is with the Latins and vowels? You know, they string a bunch of vowels together and they expect people like me to be able to pronounce it. Sancrie. Sancrie is a small town on the other side of the isthmus there, and it was kind of the port town for Corinth. So Corinth wasn't right out on the sea, but that was the major crossroad. So if you sailed into Sancrie, you headed to Corinth after it. So that's where he goes to hop on a boat. He stops over here in Ephesus. By the way, this portion of um, modern-day Turkey is what we, what's referred to as Asia. And you remember how this journey began as he wanted to go into Asia, and he was prevented. Well, now he comes back, and he hits Asia on the way home. So he stops here in Ephesus. And then he winds up sailing down to Caesarea, 
um, which is down here near Jerusalem. It's that area around there. So he sails into Caesarea, and then he goes to Antioch at the end, um, back home to report to the church that sent him. And then after he stays there for a while, whatever that means, he goes through Galatia and Phrygia. That's those areas up there near uh, Asia again, where he had planted churches on his first missionary journey. He goes back and he visits them again. It's like, thank you, Paul. That's great. Then after that, we get introduced to a new character, this man named Apollos. And he's from Alexandria, which is down here. Um, this is the delta of the River Nile. So this is Egypt. Alexandria is out on the, uh, the coast there. And so that's the geography of the whole thing. Um, and now we can put that away, but at least you have an idea where stuff is when we talk about it. So what's this about? What is this section about if it's not just a transition? Well, have you ever wondered what will the church do without so-and-so? How on earth will the church survive without filling your favorite theologian? Uh, J.I. Packer is one of my favorites. What's going to happen to the church when J.I. Packer dies? Will we be able to carry on? Who will, who will take his place? Um, John Piper is another one of my favorite. What happens when, when John Piper dies? What will happen to the church? How can she continue without that kind of a strong teacher in the church? Uh, Charles Spurgeon. What happens when Spurgeon died? What are we going to do? So really the, what's raised in this, this section is that question, what will the church do without fill in the blank? Because if you look at the way this thing lays out is Paul's journey is that first section, verses 18 through 23. And what Luke kind of does is whisk Paul out of the way. Paul is now gone from the, from the missionary journey. The focus is still on where he's been working. And so the first part is Paul departs. And then the second part is the work continues. So Paul goes, but the work continues. And that's what we're going to see. And, and hopefully as we go through this, we'll gain confidence that the church will survive if person X is gone. All right? So here's, here's how it goes. After this, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth. Right? He was in Corinth. It said that he was there for about a year and a half. While he was there, Jesus said, don't be afraid. Keep preaching. I have many people in this city. And so Paul did that. He stayed there and he, keep pre he kept preaching. And then at a certain time, it was time to go. Um, then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And he took with them Priscilla and Aquila. Now, you remember Priscilla and Aquila. They were from Pontus, which is up there by the Black Sea, living in Rome, which is on the other side of that little map we had, been kicked out of Rome by, this, the, uh, by Caesar, and they're down in Corinth. And that's when they meet up with Paul. And then Paul now becomes partners with him. So when he leaves Corinth, he takes Aquila and Priscilla and sails back. Um, and they land at Ephesus. And he leaves them at Ephesus. And he, then it says that he himself went into the uh, synagogue and did what Paul does. What it, if you bump into Paul, what's Paul going to do? He's going to tell you about Jesus. If you step on his toe, he's going he's to catch his breath, and then tell you about Jesus. So he lands at Ephesus. He finds a synagogue. He goes in, and he starts talking about Jesus. It's just what he does. The good news is the people said, well, we want you to stay with us. Stick around. We want to hear more about this Jesus. But Paul says, I can't. But if the Lord wills, I'll, I'll come back. So why is that? What's going on? Well, while he was at uh, Sancrie, he took an oath. Now, the way the Greek is lined up, he could be Paul or it could be Aquila. Um, the, the text could be either way. 
But I think it's pretty clearly Paul because the, the subject of the sentence is Paul. Paul did this, Paul did this, and then who came with him was these two. So I'm pretty sure it's talking about Paul taking this and also because he does the rest of the sailing. So that raises the first question, what is a vow? And why did he cut his hair? What did that have to do with a vow? Um, it's a complicated question, and unfortunately, Luke doesn't give us a lot of details. All we know is that he took a vow while he was at Saint-Crier, and then he cut his hair. And then from the rest of the section, it looks like part of that vow was getting back to Jerusalem. And so he's kind of in a hurry to head back there. So why did he take the vow? Doesn't say, does it? What kind of vow was it? It doesn't say. Um, so we're going to have to do some investigative work here and try to figure out what this is. So first of all, what is a vow? What, what does a vow mean? Well, we do vows now, right? I did three weddings last year. Woo and each one of them, there was a wedding vow. Do you promise to be with this person? Do you promise to take this person? That kind of stuff. So that, that's one thing that a vow is in our context is swearing to do a thing. Um, you, you would take a vow um, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I don't think that really exhausts the idea of the vow in the Bible, though. Um, it's a little bit more complicated. For example, um, in Numbers chapter 6, there's a lengthy description of something called the Nazarite vow. And this Nazarite vow, there's no description on why you would take this vow, just this is what you do if you do the Nazarite vow. No wine or strong drink. You can't even have grape products. You, you can't eat the skin of the grapes, no raisins. Um, you can't eat dried or rolled up grape leaves, no dolmas, none of that if you're under this vow. You have to let your hair grow during the time of the vow. It has to grow out. You can't ever cut it. Um, and then you have to maintain ceremonial purity. You can't ever touch a dead body. So even if, if you're under this Nazarite vow and your sister dies, you can't go and be with your sister or her family. You, you have to maintain this, this purity during this time. At the end of the ceremony, at the end of the, uh, the, the, the vow, you have to bring a specific offering to the temple. Um, there were two lambs, a ram, unleavened bread, um, a grain, and a drink offering. And then what you did is you shaved your head, and you took that hair, and you burned it as an offering to the Lord. It went on the fire with, with the offerings that you made. Very specific vow. Um, but that's all the information we get about it. Why would you take a Nazarite vow? Don't know. It doesn't help. Was Paul taking a Nazarite vow? Well, I think the fact that he shaved his head at Sancrie instead of at Jerusalem kind of says probably not. Because he did, and we'll get there, he probably did wind up at Jerusalem at one point. So maybe it's not a Nazarite vow. Um, it's hard to tell. But what then is a vow? Well, the word for vow is where we get the word for prayer, and for wish in, in uh, the New Testament. That's the same kind of word group as a prayer or a wish. And that word for vow is translated in those various ways, depending on the context. So the pagans had a vow that they would do, is they would go to a temple and they would offer to one of their gods, if you will do this for me, I will do this for you. And so they would try to win the god's affection by offering this vow, and it usually involved a sacrifice and that kind of stuff. To be sure, pagan practices seeped into Israel's culture, and there were probably some vows like that where they were trying to bribe God. But what God tells us is, do I need anything? If I was hungry, would I come and ask you for it? I own everything. 
So we can't bribe God. We can't come in with a vow and say, God, if you'll do this, I'll, be, I'll do this for you. It, biblically, if we're going to be honest with the scriptures, that's not how God operates. So whatever a vow is, the first thing it can't be is trying to bribe God into doing the thing. But it's probably along the lines of a prayer. But it's a prayer that's physical, that's, that's external, that's doing more than just closing your eyes and folding your hands. There's this, this vow is this time of saying, I'm, I'm doing this thing and I'm focusing on God. during. It's almost like fasting, isn't it? In, in the New Testament concept of fasting, you don't eat and it's not, I'm going to punish my body and show you how holy I am, God. It's, Lord, I want, but I want you more. It's, my desi- I desire, but I desire you more. And so I'm going to set aside food so that my desires, my focus will be on you. That's what fasting is. Maybe a vow is something along those lines. So while Paul is preparing for this vow, he's letting his hair grow out. It's tickling his ears. It's getting in his eyes. You know, he's normally just trim it up a little bit. And he's not going to do it because he's going to do this vow. And then after his hair is done and he shaves it off, he says, now I'm heading to Jerusalem. And so this is not, you know, Luke sums it up in, in a handful of verses. It sounded like, you know, he hopped on the airplane uh, in Greece and flew to Turkey. And then after he was in Turkey for a little bit, then he flew to Israel. This was probably a month, maybe a month and a half, maybe two months worth of travel, depending on trade winds and if he could get a ship and that kind of stuff. Luke sums it up really quick, so it sounds like it was a fast thing. If, if Paul has taken this vow in Greece and decided that he would go to Jerusalem and fulfill that vow, that whole journey is on his mind, I have made this vow to God. I am going to do this thing. So one of the theories is he's making this vow. He's taking this vow because of the most, what was the most important thing that happened last chapter? It's only been a week. You'll remember this. If you have a Bible with red letters for Jesus, look there. <laughs> Jesus came and spoke to him. Jesus said, Paul, don't be afraid. They will not harm you. I have many people in this city. So maybe what happened is Paul experienced that. He said, I got before, the, before Gallio and I was about to open my mouth and the whole thing shut down. It was miraculous. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. They won't harm me. And then I stuck around and more people came to Christ and more people came to Christ and more people came to Christ. So it's possible at this point, Paul is so thankful. He's so overwhelmed with joy. Lord, you did what you promised me. I'm going to offer this kind of prayer. I'm going to do this vow. And so I'm going to shave my hair and I'm going to go off to Jerusalem and I'm going to go to the temple and do whatever he did. As a way to say, Jesus, thank you for fulfilling exactly what you promised to me. So maybe that's what a vow is. That maybe that's what he was doing. So what it says then is he went, when he finally gets, he stops in Ephesus. We'll come back to that in a second. He goes down to Caesarea. Does it mention Jerusalem in there at all? Well, not directly. It says Caesarea. But what it does say is he went up and greeted the church. He went up. Now if you've noticed, as we go through Acts, you go up to Jerusalem, everywhere else you go down. So what it says there is he went up to Jerusalem, he greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. So it seems, and I don't want to be dogmatic about this, but it seems like he went up to the temple. He went to Jerusalem. He met the church in Jerusalem, spent some time with him, but he was in Jerusalem. Maybe that was the end of his vow. Is he saying, Lord, I'm going to come and worship you at your temple? Um, so he goes up to Jerusalem, and that's what happens. So um, 
it seems like maybe this idea, this vow, is what moved him so rapidly because have we seen Paul so far turn down an invitation to stick around and talk more? <laughs> Man, if he's, if he's hit pay dirt in a, in a synagogue and people are listening, Paul's habit has been, I will stick around and talk as long as you need me to. So maybe this vow is what's pushing him rapidly where he goes, you know what, Ephesus, I'm sorry, I can't stick around, but I'll come back if I can. And zoom, he's gone. So maybe that's what pushed him along and got him to Jerusalem and then up to Antioch and gone. So here's a question. Should we take a vow? Anybody here ever done a vow? I don't think I've ever done a vow like that. How do we decide if, if we've got Paul doing this? And by the way, he's going to do another vow in chapter 21. So we've got historical precedent for vows within the church. Should we do that? How do we know if we should do that or not? How can we tell if that's, is that a practice that, that's, that acts dictates for us? Or is it simply an observation of what happened? Um, it's a hard question. It's a good question to ask. Because there are people who read the book of Acts, see the miracles, and go, well, we, the church should be doing that. They read the, the Acts of the Apostles, they read it as descriptive, saying this is how the church should operate. And what's wrong with your church if you don't have miracles happening? They're, they're taking the book of Acts as descriptive, prescriptive. It's Ramey's fault. <laughs> as prescriptive, what we see happening here should be happening for you. I have yet to see any of them say, well, then we have to take vows. So you pick and choose your prescription, I guess. Um, by the way, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that maybe that's not the best way to read the book of Acts is as prescriptive in some of these things. We have to find a way to say, is this what we should be doing? So one of the things you can do is, I don't know if you've noticed, we have other books in the New Testament. Who knew? There is more said about this than just the book of Acts. It's brilliant. Isn't that great? So if you look through the rest of the New, the New Testament, you know how many times you see vows outside the book of Acts? You don't. So here's a clue. We don't have an elaborate New Testament doctrine of what a vow is. That's why I'm kind of waffling there trying to figure out what it is. So maybe that's not something that the church needs to continue to do. It, you could, I guess, but it's not something we have to. The other thing is, if we look at the Old Testament vow, it revolved around the temple. When you took the vow, you came to the temple to complete the vow. The story where we're at now in the book of Acts, we're in this interim period. Jesus has died, he's risen again, he's ascended into heaven, and the temple is still standing. The day is coming when the temple will not be there anymore. The temple will be gone. So how would you complete your vow? You don't have a temple to go to. What we would like is to have the Old Testament ends here, the Old Covenant ends at this point, and the New Covenant begins there, and we go on because we're Western and we like cutoffs and we like starts and clean lines, and it doesn't work like that. Even the book of Hebrews says that is fading away. That, that Old Covenant is fading, and the New Covenant is coming in. There's a transition period. So what Paul does is, we don't know why he takes the, the vow here. In Acts 21, he does it to show the Jewish believers, hey, I'm not dissing Moses. I am not throwing Moses out. And so he, he continues, it was the cultural habit of his people. So when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we have to ask, is that the cultural habit of our people? And our people is not Jew or Gentile. Our people is the church. So should you take a vow? 
Well, first of all, I want to say it's between you and God. That, that's your decision. If you're looking for habits and practices in the New Testament, I don't see that developed. I don't see that continuing on as an ongoing pattern within the church. So we don't have a robust theology that's brought to us on vows. So maybe not do a vow like Paul did. Now, if you all show up next week bald, that's okay with me. I, bald heads are great. I think they're wonderful. But if you do it for a vow, I, not sure, make sure you know what you're doing, why you're doing it, what you hope to accomplish. And whatever you do, don't think you're bribing God. Don't think, I'm going to do this, and Lord, I'm going to do this thing, and then you have to bless me because I did this for you. That's not how it operates. So whatever we get from a vow from the Old Testament, the only way it comes to us, the only way that any of those Old Covenant practices can come to us is they have to go through Jesus. They have to be somehow focused on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. So, for example, um, Seder suppers, the Lord's or the, or the uh, Passover meal, um, they're still practiced today. Jews practice them. Christians are very interested in them. They practice Seder meals too. Do we practice the Passover? Do we have a Passover? Yeah, we have it once a month in this church. It's called the Lord's Supper. We take that meal that covenant meal in the old covenant, and it comes to us through Jesus. Jesus has touched it. He's changed it. He's reshaped it. Now you're not looking forward to one day in Jerusalem. Now we're looking for the lamb who actually came. So that's the idea. If you're going to take a vow from the old covenant and bring it forward, it had better come through Jesus. It had better be transformed by who Jesus is. If that vow in the end doesn't lead you closer to who Jesus is, you've got the vow wrong. And it's not really a, a proper new covenant practice. So Paul takes this vow and he rushes through and poof, he's gone. This is, all, this is summed up so fast. Luke wrote it so quickly. You're kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> he went here, he went here, went here, went here, and then he went and did that. Boom, okay, end of the story. Paul's out of the picture. So now when the, when the, the camera focus moves back to where we were, that portion of the map where we're at in portions of Greece and Turkey, you got to go, well, now what? Does the spreading of the gospel stall because Paul is gone? He's, he's gone back to visit his home church. Does the work end? What will the church do without Paul? What's going to happen? Everybody's now sitting on their hands just waiting, right? It's, it's not like that. Listen to what happens next. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and was fervent in prayer. He spoke and taught accurately things concerning Jesus. Where on earth did this guy come from? How did the gospel get to Egypt? Who told, who told Apollos about this stuff? We don't have any idea. So this is the thing, is... Should Aquila and Priscilla go, well, you, you know, you're not part of our group. We're with Paul and you show up and we don't know who you are. And so you better just sit down and wait. What they do is they hear him speaking. They go, oh, my gosh, he's speaking accurately about Jesus. This is great. This guy's really good. And look at how eloquent he is. He speaks so fluidly. Well, he's got some things that he's missing, but I mean, that's not bad. They don't cut him off. They welcome him in. They're grateful for the fact that Paul, the eloquent teacher, right? They, they, the people in, um, in Derby called him uh, Mercury because he was the chief speaker, right? He was the eloquent one. The eloquent one's gone. God raises up another eloquent one and brings him in. 
sends him to Ephesus. Remember what Paul started in Ephesus and then took off? Well, Apollos steps into that gap and he continues to tell him about it. So we don't know who, where Apollos came from. We don't know how he heard the gospel. Here's some stuff that we know about him. First of all, he's a Jew. So he's, he's Jewish. He's a native of Alexandria. Alexandria is in Egypt. There was a great library in Alexandria. Alexandria was one of those places that was known for advanced learning. This is northern Africa, and we haven't seen that yet. All our trips have been up this way around the Mediterranean, not down that way around the Mediterranean. So he's a native of Alexandria, and somewhere along the way, somehow he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Somebody told him about Jesus. We don't know who. Was it maybe the Ethiopian eunuch? Maybe not personally, but the Ethiopian eunuch headed south because Ethiopia is below Egypt. So if they did, he went back, evangelized his nation, and maybe they sent missionaries north into northern Africa. We don't know. That's like uh, Cyrene. You remember where Cyrene is? Modern-day Tripoli, northern Africa? Way back when we were first introduced to Antioch, there were disciples coming from Cyprus and Cyrene and telling people about Jesus. So how did they hear? We, we just aren't sure. We don't know for sure. One theory, I'm going to offer my little take on this. Who was present on the day of Pentecost? People from everywhere. What did they hear on the day of Pentecost? They heard Peter tell them who Jesus was. So it's possible that maybe, if not Apollos himself, somebody knew, somebody around them, was at the day of Pentecost and heard the message of who Jesus is. And then Apollos picks up the scriptures and goes, hey, it works. That's, that's really who he is. Maybe that's how he heard it. Another clue is here that he knew the baptism of John. So what if Apollos at some time had traveled to Jerusalem, heard about, man, there's, you gotta, you got to go see this guy. There's a prophet, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's wearing a hair thing, and he's got a leather belt, and he eats locusts and honey. He's really weird, and he's out there preaching, and you got to go check him out. Maybe he went and heard that and heard about the baptism of John and then traveled back home. Because it does say he knew the baptism of John. But he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So perhaps any number of these things who knows? The other thing we know about him is he was eloquent. That's just a perfect way to translate that word. The guy had the gift of speaking. He, he was cultured. He was insightful. He was knowledgeable. He understood these things. He was learned. He could cite all of these different sources. This was a, a great speaker. I think of Ravi Zacharias. I would say he is eloquent. Because he can stand up and he can quote these things and they just roll off his tongue. And when he speaks, you shut up and listen. That's an eloquent man. So maybe that's what Apollos is like, is just used to oratory, used to speaking. And so he's eloquent, cultured, learned. And the greatest thing is he is competent in the scriptures. He is competent in the scriptures. Actually, the word there is strong. So competence is a good translation, right? If somebody's strong in the scripture, they're competent. They understand this stuff. He knows his Bible. So kind of like Paul, Paul knew his Bible. When he got Jesus, suddenly the key was in the lock, the lock turned, and it all made sense. Maybe the same thing happened for Apollos, as he knew his Bible. He's instructed in the way of the Lord. He hears about the baptism of John. The Messiah has come. Poof, it all opens up for him. And now this eloquent man is able to preach and teach and tell people. Competent in the scriptures, fervent in spirit. Um, 
Some translations in the footnote will have fervent in the spirit, capital S. So it, it's, it's hard to tell from the Greek what, what it means. It's just fervent in spirit. Is it his, his spirit is fervent? He's really you know, emotionally strong? Or was he filled with the Holy Spirit? And, and so his, his fervor comes from a Holy Spirit-inspired unction, a movement, a work in him. We're not sure. It's hard to say. But we do know he was fervent. So this eloquent man is on fire for the Lord. This, this eloquent man who knows his scripture is filled and ready to preach the gospel. What a wonderful blessing that is. You still worried about Paul not being there? The picture that we've just had painted of Apollos is we have somebody who can step into those shoes and do fine. So that's what he does. Is he, he goes into the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews. He speaks boldly. And when a Priscilla and Aquila hear him, they take him aside and explain the way of the Lord more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila are still in the synagogue. Did you notice that? They didn't go to Ephesus, grab a couple of people out of the synagogue, and then go form a church and hive off. They're continuing to go to the synagogue. They haven't been kicked out yet. This is, again, part of that transition period. So they're in the synagogue. All of a sudden, Apollos shows up one Saturday, and he starts explaining from the, from the Bible who Jesus is, and they must have just been tickled. That must have been overwhelming. A guy we don't even know. And all of a sudden, he's, he's carrying on the mission. This is excellent. He's missing some things. <laughs> because it said that he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He was accurate. He wasn't speaking errors. But Aquila and Priscilla go, yeah, but you're missing a couple of things. So let's take, come with us and let's, let's sit down and we'll talk about this. And we'll fill you in on some of the things that you may have missed. Because all he knew was the baptism of John. So he wasn't wrong. He wasn't in error. He just wasn't complete. And so they take him and they, they help him to grow and they, they help him fill up what he'd been missing. And so that's what he does. Is he continues to preach in, the, in that, that city for a while. And then, for some reason, he wished to cross to Achaia. So now, where Paul just came from, he's heading to, right? He's, he's doing the opposite journey. Paul came from Greece and headed to Turkey. He's going from Turkey and heading to Greece. Um, so he wants to go over. The brothers encourage him. They said, this is a great idea. Go do that. And they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. It was, they, they, they had to have something to say, this guy's trustworthy. Um, there's still this degree of paranoia because... Remember the troubles they faced in, in, um, in, Gala or in um, Corinth? Um, the Jews had been kicked out of, or out of Rome. So there's some problems there. And then when they got there, Gallio was, was not going to hear the trouble. The, the Jews are kind of attacking the church still. They needed something to send to the church at Corinth and say, accept Apollo. He's a good guy. He's one of us. And so they send a letter with him, and he goes back, and he, he, uh, the brothers encourage him, and they write to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those. He continued doing what he did. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So this new fledgling church in Corinth, suddenly Apollo shows up, and he begins to instruct him, begins to tell him, he's teaching about Jesus. Here's what the scriptures say. Here's what we've seen. This is who Jesus is, and he greatly helps them, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. These are the Jews who, who drug out and beat up Sosthenes. These are the Jews who hauled Paul up before Gallio and said, burn him. Zap this guy. He's a troublemaker. 
Apollo shows up and he's, he's reasoning with them and he overpowers them. He, he forcefully refutes them, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. There's no other option. This is the only person who can fulfill that. That's what he does. So do we have other evidence that this is what happened? Yeah, because the only other places that Apollos is mentioned in bulk is 1 Corinthians. And if you remember, the struggle there was some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos, and some say I'm of Christ. So you get now all of a sudden I see why it's Paul and Apollos. Apollos is this gifted, eloquent speaker, and Paul is this gifted, eloquent speaker. And so the Corinthians are going, yeah, but I like Paul, and I like, and, and Paul's answer is, yeah, knock it off, you guys. It's not about us. Because what happens if the what happens if Apollos died? What happens if Apollos never returns? What happens if Paul never comes back? Will the church continue on? Yeah, church is going to be fine. There is one person in the church, only one person in the church, who if he is not involved, the whole enterprise fails. Only one person in the church. Everybody else is totally replaceable. It's Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not in his church, his church falls flat. The person, that, whoever's standing here at this point is replaceable. Anybody could come in and take this position. Anybody who the Lord raises up could come in. And, the church will not fall because this person isn't there. So let me assure you, you are not that important. Doesn't that, isn't that liberating? Doesn't that feel better? I am not that important. What happens if I don't show up? What happens if I get hit by a bus next week? Oh, that poor church, they're just going to be gone. No way, man. This is Jesus' church. As long as Jesus continues to show up, this church will be fine. It's not you. That just takes the pressure off. That's like, man, I can minister in that kind of a situation. If it all depends on me, I'm in trouble. I, I don't want that. I can't handle that kind of pressure. I think this is really a good warning for us in America today at this point to beware of celebrity pastors. It's kind of an issue within evangelicalism. You get a big name, and they get up front, and they do their thing, and that's what is going on. If that person leaves, will that ministry continue? That, that's a warning sign. That's a problem. So this week in the news, there were two events that, or not this week, I think it was the week before, there were two events that came up pretty close to each other, and they were just jarring to hear. John MacArthur has celebrated his 50th year at Grace Community Church. 50 years. Aside from scandal being around him preaching the word of God accurately, he's been scandal free. There just hasn't been any, any kind of shade of any problem with him. It's like, it's possible. It's possible to remain in, in, in ministry and be faithful. At the same time, James McDonald in Illinois, he's the pastor of Harvest Church, Harvest yeah, Harvest, uh, I think it's just Harvest Church or something like that, got fired because of financial irregularities. They got him on tape saying some very unchristian things about some people uh, behaving in very, like, he, he needs to be disciplined kind of stuff. Um, and this guy has got this big church, probably the same size as MacArthur's, maybe even bigger. He had a radio ministry that was really big. So you see these two guys put up and you go, both of them have very large ministries. One succeeded, one fell on his face. The problem is when we put people up into that position and we throw too much weight on them, can they bear it? Can they handle it? I think from what I've heard from McDonald, 
what he was saying is he believed he was irreplaceable. I don't think John MacArthur ever, ever acted like he was irreplaceable. I, I never heard that kind of talk out of him. And so who got replaced? The irreplaceable one. <laughs> who didn't get replaced? The one who's ready to go at any moment. It's, it's a warning to us. So if you have a favorite preacher, a favorite radio person, a favorite pastor, somebody who's doing that kind of stuff, that's great. They are a huge blessing to the church. They are a blessing to you. Don't be surprised if they disappear someday. They're guaranteed, so far life is 100% lethal. Everybody's died. So that person is going to be gone at some point. J.I. Packer will die someday. Good news for J.I., he goes to his glory. He goes to be with his, his Lord. John Piper is going to die someday. Good news for him, he goes to glory. R.C. Sproul died. R.C. Sproul was so important to me, and he died. And yet the church continues on. So let's beware of the celebrity pastors. Let's not get into the Corinthian, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, um, that kind of thing. Don't forget who the most important person in the church is. First of all, it's not you. Second of all, it's not me. It's only Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's the most important thing. So it says that um, when he arrived, he says that the church grew. Uh, because he was able to preach and, and teach people. Now, does that mean that his numbers swelled to, you know, 3,000, 4,000 people in a church? Does that what we mean by church growth, by church growing? As far as I can tell from the New Testament, I don't see any place where growth is attached to numbers. As a matter of fact, I think growth comes from knowing and being with Jesus more deeply. For example, growth means to be growing Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. Hey, Ephesians, sound familiar? Ephesians chapter 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So do you want church growth? Grow into Christ. Become more like Jesus. We're commanded to grow in grace. Not numbers, but grace. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So church growth, are you growing in grace? Are you growing into the head? Are you growing into Christ? And to grow in grace, to grow in to the conformity, to, to, to grow into your head, is to grow into the image of who Jesus is. Romans 8.29, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what it means to grow. And by the way, the numbers take care of themselves. Um, Acts chapter 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, uh, the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We are to grow in what we're commanded to grow in. That's why God gives us people like Apollos and Paul, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, John MacArthur, John Piper. That's why he gives us those things, is so that we grow with the kind of growth that he's interested in. He'll take care of the numbers. He'll fill the seats. He'll grow, draw people to himself. As many as he has appointed to eternal life will believe. So where do I get that from? Where do I get this, this idea that um, you know, God will give us these people? Well, this is kind of my philosophy of ministry. A friend of mine um, recently was called to pastor a church in uh, northern Minnesota. Um, 
he sent me their newsletter, and he's got his little article in there, and I'm reading his, you know, his first article as their pastor. He hasn't shown up yet. And at the bottom, I just I almost fell over. It says, men's ice, fillish, ice fishing retreat. I wrote to him back, back to him. I said, what is wrong with you people? Ice fishing. You know what ice fishing is? You drag a little shack out onto the frozen lake, drill a hole, and sit there. Ah, so what's wrong with you people? His article was really nice. He asked me about candidating. He said, you, just, you went through this recently. How do you candidate? And I said, well, you know, your first sermon, your candidating sermon, I think is helpful if you preach your vision of what ministry is. That way, when you get there, people aren't surprised because you've already preached to them, this is what I think ministry is about. So my candidating sermon here was from Ephesians chapter 4 because I think that's what ministry is about. I think that's what Paul is talking about. So let me read this long, long-ish section and then unpack it just a little. I'm not going to re-preach my candidating sermon, otherwise my candidacy is over. <laughs> it's 4 o'clock, you're still preaching. I'm, thank you very much. The church, you told us, can do without you. So, um, so here, let me read this and then just, just unpack a little bit of it. Ephesians 4, beginning right at the beginning. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to, maintain the spirit, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, host, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, it does not, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts, the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may also no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That was my text for candidating, and I said, this is my philosophy of ministry. My job, the job of your elders, the job of your deacons, the job of your Sunday school teachers is to equip you for the work of ministry. That's what we're here for. How does that happen? This is where it gets a little complicated, but it's really helpful once we get it. Paul cites Psalm 68. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. But Paul got it wrong. He misquoted he, he's, he messed it up. He didn't have his, his, he probably, his phone probably died and he couldn't copy and paste or something. Because what Psalm 68 actually says in verse 18 is, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. 
even though even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. See, Paul blew it. I guess he didn't know his scriptures that well after all. He, he's not quoting the psalm. He is interpreting the psalm. And here's what he means is Jesus goes and he gets this host of captives. That's you. He, he got you. You are his captive. And you couldn't be held captive by a better captor. Because not only did this captor come and get you, he died for you. He rose again for you. This is the person you want to be captured by. Remember the end of World War II? People are trying to decide, do we flee to the Russians or to the Americans? Head to America. This is the people you want to be captured by. They take care of you. The person you want to be captured by is Jesus. He leads you in his train, a host of captives. And which is it? Does he give gifts to men or does he receive gifts? Both. He, re he receives gifts from men. As he gathers these captives, he gathers this host, this, this group of people that he's captured. He's gathering in his gifts. They come to him and they offer to him what they have, which is themselves, their loyalty, their love. He gathers these in. They come in. But then it says that he gives gifts to men. So out of that, that captive host, out of that group of people that he's drawn to himself, he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, he gave the shepherds, he gave the teachers. So out of that captive host that he brings in, he pulls people out and he says, I'm giving gifts to them and they are not gifts to the captive host. That's what he means by this. This is why Jesus gave us Apollos. This is why Apollos appears out of nowhere. This is why Jesus interrupted Paul right on the road to Damascus and drew him to himself. He gave gifts to these men. He gave them minds that could understand, eloquence so that they could speak, brains that could synthesize all of these different things from the scripture and come up with a solid answer. He gave them those things. He captures them, and then he turns and he gives them to the church. He hands them back to the church. So he receives gifts. He gives gifts. So that's, the, that's my philosophy of ministry. That's what I think is going on here, is Apollos is part of that captive host. He's gifted, he's turned around, and he's given back to the church to be a blessing. Who does the gifts? Who gives the gifts? Who receives the gifts? Who leads the captive host? It's Jesus. That's why I said the only person that's indispensable to this church is Jesus Christ. Because if suddenly all your leadership vanished in a moment, he would raise up other people to be leaders. You are ultimately replaceable. Because you're replaceable, now you're free to minister. You're, you're free. I, I don't have to worry about this. This is all about Jesus. He gave me the gifts. He gave me the position. He's taken care of it. The church will not crumble if I mess this up. He'll just get me out of the way and give somebody else the position. I'm free to try my best because I don't have to worry about condemnation. So that's what I'm talking about. Jesus gives the gifts. And so look at who's in the second half. Remember, the first part is pretty much Paul, Aquila and Priscilla get dropped off in Ephesus, and then Paul heads off and he's gone. Who does that leave behind in our story, in the way that he's writing? Listen to who he leaves behind. First of all, Apollos. I want that guy on my team, right? He, he, if he shows up here, he's got a position on this staff. He, he's, he's got the position. He's got the skills. Aquila and Priscilla. They take the man who knows the scriptures well, and they inform him better. Yeah, I want those people on my team too. They're pretty good. They know what they're doing. It, it, there's a letter that's, uh, the brothers send a letter. The brothers are left behind. 
And they send a letter to the disciples. The disciples were left behind. And the disciples then receive him, those who through grace believed. So what happens when Paul's gone? This is who ministry falls to. This is who it comes down to. All of these people who are left there, they continue the ministry. That's the message of this little transitional section. Now, next week we'll pick up an 18, and Paul's going to be back in the spotlight. But it's good every once in a while to have the hero moved for a second so we can see that it's not Paul's church. Do you remember way back at the beginning in, in chapter 8, the same thing happened with Peter. We got Peter every week. Peter did this, and Peter did this, and Peter did this. And then all of a sudden, Stephen gets stoned, and the spotlight swings off Peter and onto Philip. And Philip does the ministry. And what we saw was, hey, it's possible for people other than the hero. Same thing is happening here now. Luke is doing that same thing. He's interrupting the narrative to draw our attention to not Paul. He's saying the ministry will continue. That's really hopeful for us because all of the people that are involved in this are dead and gone. And guess who it fell down to? The ministry falls to us. It's on our shoulders. Now it's our turn to do it. Do you have any kind of hope that we'll be able to actually carry this on? We don't have to have the Apostle Paul. It would be great to have the Apostle Paul. Not complaining. We don't have to have the Apostle Paul. We have the completed New Testament. We have the rest of the Bible. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the gifts that God gives to the church. He draws us together and he says, Now, go make disciples. You are my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now go. That's what fits us for ministry. That's what equips us. That's what makes this church tick. So who is the most important person in this church? Jesus Christ. All y'all. Everybody. That's not even a right English. All y'all. Well, I guess it's right English depending on where you're from. Everybody. You're all replaceable. You're all dispensable. Congratulations. That's good news. That makes me happy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Um, your church, which Paul says is the pillar and the support of the truth. Uh, Lord, we are not unconsequential. We are not um, useless. But Lord, we're not irreplaceable. We're not indispensable. And so Lord, thank you that you have given us a very important role in your body, that you use us all together. We all come together to build up the entire body and that we all ascend to and, and desire to reach to our head, who is Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank you for the diversity of gifts, the diversity of people, the diversity of opinions, the diversity of approaches that you have given to your body. And may they all work together for the common purpose of making everybody more Jesus, like Jesus. And so, Lord, thank you for not making us indispensable. Thank you for replacing us when we need to be replaced. And then thank you for using us in between those times. And uh, Lord, would you continue to do those things in your church, especially here at Trinity, but everywhere in the Antelope Valley, all the churches in the valley who are following after the head who is Christ, would you continue to do those things in them? Thank you for your gifts. In Christ's name, amen.